examples of godly men of faith in the Old Testament, just to name a few, these men who did these great things, these unthinkable things in faith. We look at Abraham, just as one example, and him taking his only son to the top of the mountain to sacrifice on the, on the Lord's request. You know, he had faith that the Lord was going to make a great nation from him. He had faith that the Lord would honor what he was about to do, and he went up in faith, prepared to sacrifice his son because the Lord told him to. And the Lord honored that, and the Lord spared his son. He, he offered a, another sacrifice, a spotless lamb. We see Moses, and he parted the Red Sea, and he, he freed the Israelites from Egypt. And the faith that took, it seems such a, a menial thing to just, he said, stick out your staff, and the sea will part. He could have just said, Lord, you're nuts. What is that going to do for me to stick out my staff? But he did. He did this menial thing that the Lord told him to do. He did it in faith. The Red Sea parted, and they escaped the Egyptian army. In chapter 12, we get into the race of faith and the discipline of the Lord, the correction of the Lord. Um, And as we get into it, there's going to be, I'm going to use a lot of race analogies and sports analogies. And um, I learned them all. I watch a show called Boundless, and they follow these two ultra athletes, and they go all around the world, and they do all these ultra marathons running hundreds of miles each race, and they do like over a few thousand in a year. Um, and I watch that show all the time, so I know a lot about it. I'm pretty much an ultra-athlete myself at this point from having watched it so much. Um, so there's going to be a lot of race analogies there. They're real. I, I know they're real. Um, and I'm going to use those kind of along the way to, to illustrate things. Um, but before we get into it, I just want to pray. So let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for today, Lord, for this weekend, Lord, for to to reflect on the freedoms that we have, Lord, um, because of the sacrifice of men and women who, who went to protect our freedom to worship, Lord. To, it's because of that that we can come gather here to hear your word freely and, and worship you freely, Lord, and not have to worry about violent persecution, Lord, or imprisonment, Lord. And we thank you for that freedom. We thank you for that chance to just come here and gather in the open and just worship you and praise you, Lord. And I just ask as I bring your, bring your word to to the congregation that it would be your word, that you would speak through me, Lord, that your spirit would, would speak through me and that your spirit would just come upon everyone in the room and that everyone could receive what you have to say to them today. And I just ask all this in your name. Amen. My voice is a little hoarse from first service. I got really excited. Um, Rob did the first two verses last week, but I'm going to kind of retouch on those just to give a little bit of context as we keep going. Um, So we'll start here at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Therefore, we also, you know, speaking, we just spoke of all the people of faith and and the walks they had in their faith. So he keeps going, saying, Therefore, in addition to that, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. First thing I want to address is this cloud of witnesses. What does that mean? We have so great a cloud of witnesses, so let us lay aside every weight and, and run the race. 
This cloud of witnesses could mean a few things. There's different theories about it. There's some theories that it's the forefathers, the, the men of faith, and they're in heaven observing us. They're, our, they're witnessing us, and we need to make them proud. And I don't know that I necessarily believe that. Um, you know, heaven is, heaven is a place with no worries, no troubles, no, no heartache. And I, I feel like if they were watching us make some of the stupid decisions we make, it wouldn't be that pleasant as the Bible says it is. So I don't know that they're watching us. I don't know that these are the forefathers making sure we're, we're living up to the faith. Um, another theory is that it's the world. The whole world is our, our they're witnessing what we're doing and we need to, to uh, take note of that. I don't necessarily believe that either. I believe, and I think most of the commentators that I, uh, I read when I studied this believe that it's speaking that the forefathers were such a great witness to us. There are examples. These are the men we need to be looking to when we're struggling, when we're, when we're having trouble with our faith. We need to look at the things these men accomplished in their faith in God, not in their own strength, not in their own wisdom, in their faith in God above. Now, it says here to look set aside every weight and every sin which so easily ensnares you and let you run the race with endurance. Now, with them as examples, looking at their faith and how much they trusted God and how much they, they didn't rely on their own wisdom and strength, it says they're essentially the author, who I'm probably going to accidentally say Paul a few times. I think it's Paul. We don't know. Um, but this whole race thing, Paul mentions races and other epistles. He tells Timothy to finish the race, fight the good fight. So I think it's Paul. So if I accidentally say Paul, just forgive me. Um, with them as, as our examples, they're saying to drop the baggage, drop this extra stuff, drop the extra weight, and to run the race and accept the salvation. These guys haven't really, they started the race, but they're kind of running around in circles. They're Their weight that it's being talked about is the Jewish law and the tradition. He's He's writing this letter to the Hebrew converts, they, they're having trouble getting rid of their old traditions. It's, they're making it Christ plus. They're still upholding to, the, to some of the dietary laws, some of the sacrifices, some of the things that, that Christ has fulfilled, that they don't need to, to be carrying themselves anymore, that weight, and it's slowing them down. And the sin that it refers to here is their unbelief. By continuing to rely on the traditions, the sacrifices, um, adhering to the law um, and their Talmud and all the extra little things that got written and added by men, they're essentially not believing in the sufficiency of the grace of, the grace of Christ. Christ's work on the cross was enough. His grace is enough. And when we add to it or take from it, we're essentially saying it's not enough. Now, we aren't Jews, at least most of us aren't. There may be someone who has Jewish, Jewish heritage in here, but this still applies to us. This applies to us as Americans, not as Hebrews, as Christians um, who aren't converts from Judaism. Christianity has developed a lot of its own traditions, a lot of its own works, a lot of its own uh, things that we do that we put emphasis on for salvation, for, for being saved. And I'm sorry, but, you know, saying, reciting a prayer a particular way or kneeling now and standing then and doing these certain things and eating communion a particular way, it, it doesn't make you any more or less saved. What saves you is the blood of Jesus Christ. 
and that and that alone, that sacrifice he made, that atoning sacrifice washed away the sins, there's nothing we can do to add to that. There's nothing we can do to take away from that. Now, this can also take form of other baggage, maybe some emotional baggage, things that we carry with us that keep us from the Lord. I know when I first came to the Lord, I had a lot of, a lot of anger, a lot of guilt, a lot of shame, a lot of doubt from the life that I'd been living previously. And it's really difficult sometimes to let those things go, but to, to remove that baggage, to take it off, to leave it behind, to lay it at the feet of Christ, it lightens your load. It makes it easier to run towards Christ. It makes it easier to, to run the race. And this sin, we can, we can have the sin of unbelief as well. We, we don't, we're not practicing Jewish tradition. We're not practicing Jewish law, but we can have the same belief. We can think that Christ's grace isn't enough for us. We can think that if I can only do this, then that'll make it better. That'll make me more savable, more righteous, more worthy. And there, there's nothing further from the truth. There, there's nothing we can do that can add or take away from the sacrifice of Christ. Now, it talks about endurance here. The, I think the door might have just blown open. Um, endurance is the determination to finish, to resist the temptation to quit, to back out, to stop running forward. And it's easier to endure when we're best utilizing our energy, when we lose the baggage. You see some races, guys have these big backpacks full of granola bars and water and all this different stuff, and it's harder to run. You wear out quicker. We look to Jesus, who endured to the finish. He finished the race, and he did it by looking towards the finish line. He looked towards the joy in accomplishing the Father's will. We can have that same joy. We can know what the end game is. We're, we're running already from a place of victory. We're fighting from a place of victory. Jesus has won the race. He's won the war. Jesus is not only at the finish line. He's part of the prize, and he's also our coach, and he can also be our running mate. And I'm going to use some of these metaphors, and you guys might think, well, you know, Jesus is much more than all of those things, and you'd be absolutely right, but for the sake of illustration, I'm going to use some of these. When we see some of these races, these races where men run 100 miles or more, they're not carrying bags. They're not carrying anything with them. What they have, it's called a support wagon, and it's a vehicle that comes up beside you. Your coach is usually in that vehicle, and they hand you protein bars, and they hand you water, and they they give you what you need to keep going. Jesus is your coach. He's in that vehicle. He's pulling up right beside you when the race gets tough. He's handing you your food and water. Jesus said that he is the bread of life. We who come to him shall never hunger. He's the living water. If we come to him, we shall never thirst. It's by him that we get the spiritual nourishment that we need, the spiritual strength, the spiritual energy we get that spiritual protein bar to make us strong, to keep going. Also, the support wagon, they're there for encouragement. Your coach pulls up beside you to encourage you, to tell you to keep running, to keep going. Don't stop. Don't quit. You can do this. It gives you guidance and wisdom. There's never any coach 
at least there shouldn't be, most coaches who are effective have played the sport before. They've run the race. They, they, they've gone through what you're going through. Otherwise, they can't really accurately tell you what you need to do to win, to accomplish this. And Jesus has run the race, so his guidance, his wisdom for the next step, for what you need to do is above all. It's, it's always accurate. It's always right. He's going to give you the best advice, the best wisdom you need to keep moving forward. He knows the race. It says here that he's the author and finisher of our grace. He started this redemptive plan before the foundations of the earth, the Bible says. He knew that things were going to go the way that they went, and he started a plan. That redemptive plan is the work that he started and he's seeing it through. He's not giving up on it. And he's, he's not going to give up on us. When we, when we decide to, to run the race, we become part of that work. We become part of that redemptive plan. He draws us in. And we start running the race. There's a lot of sports movies and stuff where there will be this, this old coach. He's retired. He's kind of washed up and Jesus isn't washed up. I didn't go down that road the first time. There's this coach, and this coach, he's done it. He's a champion. He, he's, he's run the race. He's, he's fought the fight, and he sees someone, and he sees potential in them. You know, you hear him as, oh, you got spunk, kid. I like you. I think you, can, I think you can be a champ. I think you can win this race. Think about the karate kid and Mr. Miyagi. <laughs> Mr. Miyagi saw something in Daniel's son, and he started training him, and he was making him do things that he didn't understand. Daniel wondered, what is this, how is this possibly going to, how is me waxing your car, how is me doing your chores going to help me win a fight? You know, the wax on, wax off. You guys all know what I'm talking about, right? And later, you see where that came into play, this thing that he didn't understand that his coach was showing him, that his coach was putting him through and making him do. You see later, that helped him deflect strikes from his enemy. That helped him fight, and ultimately, at the end of the movie, he won the fight. And Rocky, you got Mick. Mick's always there, hey, Rock. He's go chase that chicken around, and, you know, why would he need to chase a chicken? What, how, is, how is chasing a chicken going to help me beat Apollo Creed? Made him quick on his feet, trained him, and he won. He beat Apollo Creed. And the thing that those coaches had in common with Jesus, they drew these competitors in. They drew these guys in. They saw the potential. The Lord draws us. He pulls us near to him. And when he starts us on this race, when he starts training us, when he starts conditioning us, when he starts working in us, he doesn't give up on us. He waits. He continues until the day of Jesus Christ, until we either go to meet him or the rapture happens. He's going to continue working in us, continue perfecting us, continue pushing us forward in the race. He will not forsake you. He is always by your side till the end of the race. There's a lot of obstacles in some races. They come in different shapes and forms. They can come in hardships in life. They can come in tragedy. They can come from other people from unbelievers, from, from people opposing you. Like Charlie said, some college professors want to do everything they can to pull your faith away from you. It can wear us down. It can discourage us. It can make it really hard to want to keep running. 
verses three and four, it says, for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. If the hall of faith isn't enough for you guys to think that's a good example, if, if they're not enough, if Moses and Abraham aren't enough to, to be an example to you, look to Christ. Christ ran the same race. He was on earth. He came into human form. He had temptations. He had, a, he had the Father's will that he had to walk through, that he had to adhere to. He had a purpose on being on earth. For us, sometimes doing the right thing often comes with opposition. We can try and try and try and do the right thing, but people keep just butting against us. We keep running against the wind, blow after blow. In uh, one of Paul's epistles, he talks about the furtherance of the gospel. We learned at the pastor's conference last week that the word for furtherance is a nautical term, and it refers to a ship that's going through the water and it's making progress, but it keeps coming up against big waves and pounding into big waves, and the waves are pounding back against the ship, and the ship just keeps going and going, and it may not be going fast, and it may be difficult, and it may be getting beat up, but it's still progressing. It's still furthering the gospel. It's still moving forward, and that's how our race is. That's how our race can be. It is tiring. It's discouraging. It's disheartening. The Hebrews here that are getting written to, they faced angry Jews, angry Hebrews who were mad that they left for a, for a Messiah that they don't believe is the Messiah. They think that they're blasphemers. They think they're, they're uh, heretics. Jesus faced the same angry Jews, the Jewish system, the Jewish leaders. Jesus was helping people. He was healing people. He was loving people. He was redeeming people left and right, showing them the light, showing them the truth about the law, about the Old Testament, about God and God's love for us. And they just kept coming against him every single step of the way, no matter what he did right. They were always there to tell him he was wrong, to try and push him back down, to try and hurt him, to try and stop him. But he kept running the race because he knew what was at the finish line. That finish line meant redemption for us. He got to purchase back his children, the children of God from sin, from death, from the thing that we sold ourselves into at first sin. He gets to have his back. He gets to have that commune, communion, that relationship with us. We get the chance to go straight to him. We get the chance to have eternal life with him in heaven forever. And it's because he ran the race willingly. He went against the humiliation willingly. He went through the torture willingly. He died willingly. He would have done it for just one of us. He didn't have to do it for any of us. In our race, we are to further the gospel. We're to be pointing people to Christ. In doing so, that's more saved souls. That's more people crossing the finish line. To be in blessed union with the Lord. That's our finish line. That's our crown at the end. It's the, the furtherance of the gospel. That's our extra blessing on top of our salvation. Verse 4, it says to the Hebrews that you have not yet resisted bloodshed, resisted to bloodshed, rather, striving against sin. They've never had to shed their blood to resist sin. Now, Stephen and James, 
have been martyred by now in Jerusalem. So this is likely a tell that these particular Hebrews are not in Jerusalem. They're not in the city. They're in a different place. The, the martyrdom, the violence is elsewhere. We are in a similar situation here in America. We, we aren't experiencing bloodshed for our faith. We're not up against violent opposition. We're not up against death. We're not up against imprisonment and torture. But other places in the world, they are. Their races are much more difficult. The obstacles include barbed wire and bullets. And they still run the race. They still move forward because they know the finish line is worth it. That eternal salvation, that eternal blessing of being with the Lord forever is worth it. It's worth the risk. And we, myself included as much as anyone else, we tend to take it for granted a little bit and uh, we let little things hold us back. We, we, we let things hold us up. We let things slow us down. It's, it's really easy to maybe not want to be bothered with possibly witnessing to someone that might need it. Maybe they'll think we're weird. Maybe we tried to witness to someone once and they didn't receive it well. They were, they were nasty to us. And we felt, well, I'm, I'm, I'm oppressed for my faith. I'm persecuted, and we're not persecuted. We, we have no reason to feel that way, to let little things like that hold us back from the race. And I just wanna, want you guys to keep that in perspective next time there's someone that you think might need to hear the word of God. If they're right next to you, you have nothing to lose. Try and spread the love. In verse 5, rather, let me rewind, there's another context for the shedding of blood here. Jesus resisted going outside of his father's will so hard that he sweat blood. If you guys don't know, going outside of the will of the father or ignoring the will of the father is a sin. Jesus resisted going outside of the will. There was temptation from Satan to stop going forward, to not go through with the torture, to not go through with the death, to not go through with the crucifixion. And it was tempting. Jesus had a human body. He knew it was going to hurt. He wasn't looking forward to it. He wanted the Father's will. He knew it was at the finish line, and he went willingly, but he wasn't looking forward to it. There was every temptation for him not to do it, and he resisted that temptation so hard that it pained his body to the point that he bled. He sweated blood. I have never had a temptation so great to sin that I sweat blood trying to resist it. Staying in God's will, though, is often uncomfortable. It's often scary, and it can at times be painful. Especially in periods of much growth, when the Lord's really trying to grow you, when the Lord's really trying to do a work, when the Lord's really trying to, to push you forward, it can hurt. We're in an uncomfortable period right now. There's a lot of questions floating around there's uh we're in a big transition period but the lord's moving the lord is moving here he's growing us we're still moving forward in this race in john 15 jesus calls himself the vine and he calls us the branches and the vine directly feeds the branches to produce fruit there's some dead branches that need pruned out but on the branches that are producing fruit, maybe us, the believers who, who are producing fruit, 
we still need pruned. There can be extra leaves or extra runoffs of our, of our branch that are taking energy, taking nutrients, take, taking sunlight from the fruit. And the Lord needs to prune them off. Some of those, those extra leaves, those extra things can be, you know, guilt or shame or anger or a sin in our life that's holding us back from growth. And he snips them off. And by snipping those things out, all the nutrients then go to the fruit. I don't know if you guys know anything about gardening or not, but that's how it works. The more energy, the more nutrients that can go through the branches to the fruit, the bigger the fruit's going to be, the more fruit it's going to bear. All those extra leaves are just soaking it up. So the Lord prunes us, it says. He removes these extra factors from our lives that's keeping the fruit. But to prune, you have to cut things away. Think about that. Think about the things in your life that the Lord may be trying to take away. He's cutting them out. It can be very unpleasant. It can be very painful. Sometimes those things that the Lord's removing is all you've ever known. That's the only way you've ever acted. It's the only way you've ever been. When the Lord started doing that work in me, when he, when he removed my addiction from my life, that was the only thing I'd known for 10 years. And it was painful. And it hurt. I didn't know how to do anything else. But then the fruit came. It's easy to give up. It's easy to go back outside of his will because it's too hard, because it's too painful, because we don't understand what he's doing, why he's cutting these things out, why we may be experiencing some trials, some obstacles. But if you intentionally back out of his will because it's too easy, you're probably going to lose the race. Verse 5, <clears throat> he encourages them to appreciate the correction from the Lord. It says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. He takes the Hebrews back to the Hebrew scriptures and Proverbs. He says, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you're without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. King James Version uses a different word for illegitimate, and it's a lot heavier, and it sounds a lot worse. I'm not going to use it, but it makes it sound a lot worse than the word illegitimate. He points the Hebrews back to the Hebrew Scriptures there, to encourage them that the Father disciplines them as sons. The discipline from the Father is always corrective. It's never punishment. The Lord is not punishing you. He's correcting you. He's redirecting you. He's showing you what's right in place of what you may be doing wrong. It's really easy to look around at other people who are getting away with all kinds of things, all kinds of sin. The guy down the street doing drug deals every day outside of your house and beating his wife and all this stuff. And you think, why is this guy not, why is this guy not getting in trouble? Why is he getting away with this? Why, why Lord, when I have one little slip up, one little sin, I get chastised. You, you, pun it, you, you correct me and this guy's down here getting away with everything. 
He's causing a whole wreck of the block. He, he's disrupting the peace. Does a father discipline other people's sons? If your son, or if you are a son, if your son gets in a fight at school, the principal calls you to go pick up your son, are, are you going to discipline the other kids that were in the fight, the other kids that caused the disruption? No. Or else you're going to end up in a fight with some other parents. You take your kid and you discipline them. I remember I got, the first time I ever really technically got arrested was for skateboarding. And uh, we were on Memorial Hospital property, and some of the kids I was with, I'd never been in trouble before in my life. This was before I got into active addiction or anything. I was just some kid skateboarding. And some of the other kids who didn't really have much discipline in their lives were throwing cherries at a bunch of the cars in the parking garage. And, of course, security has cameras, and they saw it, and they came after us. And everyone took off running, and I was naive, and I'd never been in trouble before. So the security guard comes up, and I'm like, well, hey, how you doing? And... Uh, they grab me and whoever else couldn't run away fast enough and they take us, they cuff us and put us in the little security building and then my dad came to get me. He's a deputy, he was a city police officer at the time so it's not really you know, favorable for a, a cop's son to get arrested. And he came and I remember getting in the truck and I got disciplined. No one else got in that truck, no one else went and got disciplined. Most of the other kids, their dads didn't discipline them. They weren't maybe even present. They didn't have that direction. But my dad took me and he disciplined me because he knew that I'd done something wrong and he wanted to make sure that I would start to do something right and not do that wrong thing again. If you aren't being corrected for your sin, if you aren't being disciplined from the Lord, if you're getting away with sin, if you're living in constant sin and you have no consequences, it says that he's not your father. You're illegitimate. I'll tell you, this is a choice. He wants to be your father. He wants you to be his children. If you are living outside of that, this is a choice that you're making. You can lay everything down and walk towards him. In verse 9, he says, furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Earthly fathers, you're humans. Kids, your dad is a human. We are imperfect beings. Therefore, the things that we do, the parenting techniques, possibly the discipline, will be imperfect. With the best of intentions, with, with, with trying to do what's best for you, there, there can be mistakes. There will be mistakes. Some people in this room probably had really bad relationships with their earthly fathers. Maybe there are mistakes eclipse their good intentions maybe they didn't care maybe they were hateful maybe they had their own problems they were working through and couldn't be bothered and for those who have had that I want to tell you that I'm sorry and I want to encourage you that the heavenly father 
will never disappoint you. He will never let you down. He will never punish you for no reason. He will never harm you. All of his correction is out of love. It's for what's best for you. He loves us so much that he sent his son to save us, to die on a cross, to redeem us, to to shed his blood, to wash away our sins. That love is uncomparable to anything else. So don't let a bad example here on earth deter you from a relationship with your heavenly father. Verse 11 It says, now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You know what I learned when I got older, after I got in all kinds of trouble, and I ignored a lot of the instruction and correction that I was given? My dad and my mom were usually right. Keep that in mind, all you young young folks out there. Your mom and dad are usually right. It may be unpleasant at the time. You may not be able to go out with your friends one night because you did something wrong. You may think they're just trying to make it so you can't have any fun, but I tell you, those lessons that you learn later in life, you realize that the principles they were instilling in you are lasting till today. I remember as a kid, I was taught to hold the door open for people, and if I didn't hold the door open for people, my dad would grab my arm and pull me back and say, hold the door open. And that happened a few times until I was trained. I was corrected. It's not always punishment. It's correction. He he didn't smack me for not holding the door. He just pulled me back and said, you hold the door for people. And now to this day, it doesn't matter if there's like a train of 50 people. I'm going to stand there and hold the door, even if I never make it inside. Because that's how I was raised. That's That's what my training did. That's what my correction was. When I did martial arts, there are certain stances that we had to have, certain techniques that we had to uphold to be more effective in, in fighting. And if you, weren't stand, if, if you were standing in some of those positions, it was a little uncomfortable. Your legs might get tired, but they were the most stable. Your enemy couldn't knock you down as easily. And if you weren't standing like that, the sensei comes up with a bamboo katana and whacks you in the shins until you stand right. It hurts. It doesn't feel good. But after you get whacked with that katana so many times, you realize that that's more painful than the bit of discomfort for doing it the right way. When you see people training for these big grueling races or for like the CrossFit games or something where they're lifting weights and doing a million burpees and pull-ups and running five miles, you see, if you see them practice... They're practicing harder and harder. Their coaches are pushing them harder and harder and harder than they would ever compete. They, they practice, they train until they throw up so that when they get out there and they're actually competing, they're able to endure. They have the strength. They have the skills. They, ha- they have what they need to overcome those obstacles, to continue till the end of the race, until they reach the finish line. God's discipline, God's correction is training us. He's perfecting us in righteousness, in the righteousness of Christ, in the righteousness of that grace. Verse 12 says, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down in the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. There comes a point in these endurance races where you've just run past your body's ability 
and it becomes a mental game. You have to tell yourself to keep going and it becomes extremely difficult. Your, your, your body's weak, you're drained, you feel broken, you're fighting, your body is fighting against you. You lose your edge, you can't lift your hands, your knees are buckling, you just got no juice left. You lose your edge. There's another story from the pastor's conference. One of the uh, pastors that spoke used to be the janitor at Costa Mesa where Chuck Smith's church was. And Chuck Smith's associate pastor, Romaine, was, uh, he was a Marine. He was a straightforward, tell you what you need to hear kind of guy. And this, uh, this pastor who was the janitor at the time, he was feeling worn out. He was feeling bogged down. He, what, he was losing his edge. He went to Pastor Romaine and he said, you know, Pastor Romaine, do you ever get burned out? Do you ever... Do you ever get discouraged? Do you ever lose your edge in ministry? Romain told him yes, and initially it discouraged him. He said, this is the guy I look up to, and he's getting burnt. he gets burned out too. What, how am I going to get through? He said, well, Romain, what do you do when you lose your edge? He looked right at him, and he said, you get it back. You get your edge back by coming and laying down at the feet of the Lord again. Come back to the Lord Come back to his grace. Let him heal you. Let him refresh you. Let him renew you. Let him give you your second wind. Remember the support wagon I talked about that your coach is in. It pulls up beside you, hands you your your food, your protein bars, your energy, your water. He's encouraging you. He's telling you not to give up. You're almost there. Just keep running. Keep fighting through it. The finish line is almost near. Just keep going forward. I'll give you the strength. Here's the food. Get your strength back. I'll give you the water. I'll give you the nourishment. I'll give you that spiritual fuel that you need to keep running this race. There's another technique in a lot of these races and team races. They'll tie ropes to each other, you and your partner. It's called a tow rope. And when you start getting tired, when you start wearing down, if your partner has more energy than you, he's in front of you. He's kind of pulling you along. He's not dragging you, but by even just having that little bit of momentum coming from him, that burden taken from you, you're able to run more easily. It's by connecting yourself to the person that has more strength to help you run the race. By connecting yourself to Jesus in those times where you feel like you can't run anymore, he'll continue to pull you through. He'll continue to move you forward in this race. He will continue to guide you forward towards eternity. In verse 14, it says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. As believers, people watch us. We're the ones in the world. But people look to us to see maybe what Christianity is all about. We're supposed to be the image of Christ. We're supposed to be a light to the world. These are spectators of the race. They are watching how we're running. We're supposed to strive for peace. We're supposed to strive for holiness. These are qualities that every believer should have by Christ. By Christ Jesus, we should be able to see these fruits in our lives. Holiness, this Christ-like, the, the holiness, the fruits of the Spirit are gentleness, patience, caring, loving, truthfulness, compassion. If we're not exhibiting these things, if, if the fruit of the Spirit's not coming through in us, we're not representing Christ properly. If we don't represent Christ properly, no one will see him. They will just see us. And then they won't want what we have. We can have the, you, in sports, you can have the best coach in the sport. He can teach you sportsmanship. He can teach you humility. He can, he can train you and give you strength. 
He can give you proper technique, but if you don't represent that on the, on the racetrack or the, the, the football field or whatever sport it is or whatever you're doing, if you don't represent the things that your coach is teaching you properly, people if considering running that race, they're going to try and choose a different coach to get them to the finish line. They're going to choose some other religion, some other, some other uh, savior uh, to get them there. They're not going to want what you have. We need to have peace with everyone. We need to represent Christ properly. We want people to look at us, to look at the joy we have in tough times, to look at how we run, to look at where we turn to for our strength, the reliance on the Lord, and make them say, I want that coach. I want the Lord to give me my strength. I want the Lord to give me my peace. I want that salvation. I want that gift from Jesus Christ. And I want to cross the finish line into heaven for eternity. Verse 15 it says, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble. And by this, many become defiled, and lest there be any fornicator or profane, profane person. Teammates, I'm getting there, I heard that. Um, teammates and other races, ra other racers, excuse me, can, we can be a help to each other. You've seen video footage of races where someone falls down and they, they break their leg and other racers come and pick them up. They carry them to the finish line, even if they're on other, other teams, you know. Of course, we're all on the same team. We need to make sure that none of our teammates fail to obtain the grace. If we see a new, a, a new runner, someone new to the race, and they've got too much baggage, they're still holding on to the rituals and the traditions, the things that they, the works that they think they need to do to, to be saved, we encourage them to drop that weight and rely on grace to keep running towards the Lord. Try and introduce them to your coach, you know. We keep fellow racers from bringing each other down. If you saw someone trying to cheat, you'd stop it, wouldn't you? Bitterness springing up in the body creates such dis just it's poison bitterness can come about in many different ways it can be jealousy it can be unforgiveness it can be guilt it can be anything but these feelings this bitterness this division sometimes produce wrong actions we can't allow it to take hold. This type of feeling sometimes makes people want to trip another competitor, trip another race racer. You know what happens sometimes when you trip someone that you're running next to is you fall down with them. Maybe you get hurt. Maybe you don't finish the race because you wanted to try and trip this person up. You wanted to get ahead of this person. That's the power that bitterness has. I encourage you guys here, if you have any kind of bitterness, any kind of strife, any kind of anger or unforgiveness with any brother or sister in the Lord, clear it up, forgive each other, pick each other up and finish the race. It says, see that there be no fornicator or 
profane person, if you see someone going off course, getting into sexual immorality or any other lifestyle of sin, remind them where the course is. Remind them to get on track. Remind them to go running towards the Lord with love always. Remind them about the big picture. Remind them about the finish line. Point them back on the right track. It says in 16, it, it continues, it says, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward he wanted to inherit the blessing, but he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. In Jewish tradition, the firstborn of the family got the inheritance. Esau was the firstborn. He, he had the birthright. He was supposed to get the blessing of the Lord. Isaac was part of the, the holy line leading to the Messiah. Esau had the birthright. The thing about Esau, he was athletic, he was naturally gifted, he was strong, he was handsome, he was a good hunter, he was doing well on his own. He didn't need God. There was no one that, that needed to help him with anything. He, he didn't consider it. He, he thought he could run the race on his own and get by okay. Sold his blessing to satisfy his flesh. If you know the story, he gave up his birthright of the nation for a bowl of stew that his brother Jacob made him. He gave up his eternal blessing to satisfy his flesh for one moment. He didn't want to trust God. He didn't want to rely on God. He was good. He didn't need to repent. He didn't need the Lord. Afterwards, he sought the blessing with tears. The way that's worded, you could take it that he sought, he, he, had no, he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. That's saying, essentially, that he, he made no place for repentance. He chose not to repent. He, he couldn't be bothered by it. Then afterwards, he sought the birthright diligently with tears. He had his regret that he gave it up. He ignored the coach. He ignored God. He didn't want anything to do with God. He, he had it all figured out. I don't need a coach. I'm already athletic. I can win the game. I can win the race. He lost the race because he ignored the coach, and he cried. He would have gotten the first participation trophy in history. Um, but in this race, there's no participation trophies. We don't, we, don't, we don't get the prize. We don't get the crown just because we ran. We have to finish. We have to stay pressing forward. There's only one way, and that way is Jesus. Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one come to the Father but by him. We cannot enter heaven we cannot enter the eternal presence of the Lord, our God, without Jesus Christ, without him running this race with us, pulling us through this race, encouraging us through this race, strengthening us through this race, sustaining us through this race over every obstacle, over every hurdle, through all the mud, through all the muck, 
through all the wind that we're running against, through all the blows, through all the opposition, he's there with us. We need to listen to our coach when he wants to correct us, when he's training us, when he's doing a work in us. We need to trust in Jesus. We need to trust him. We need to rely on him. And we need to finish the race or we lose. Now, if anyone here is thinking about running the race, I would love to introduce you to my coach. Come see me afterwards, and I would, I would love to introduce you to Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that you're there beside us running this race, Lord, and that there's a finish line that is so unimaginable, so great, so amazing, Lord, that we can't even fathom it with our physical minds, our human minds, Lord, and I just, I just ask you for your grace in my life, Lord. I ask you to take my baggage, Lord, to come up beside me and sustain me through this race. And I ask for your encouragement and your strength to keep moving forward. I thank you for your, your dedication to us, Lord. You never give up. You never forsake us. You never leave our side. I hope to finish the race, Lord. I hope one day to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And it's by you that I, I will seek, and it's by you that I hope everyone else here seeks that finish line. And I just ask all this in your name, amen.